Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TF Blockchain Podcast, where we interview blockchain and digital currency innovators building our distributed future. I'm your host and founder of TF Blockchain, Jonathan G. Blanco. TF Blockchain hosts premier conferences, events, and media featuring blockchain leaders actively growing the industry. With our platform, we are connecting business and technology executives with blockchain innovators leading the charge. Through our interactive speaker presentations, facilitated networking sessions, and our video and podcast series. Before we get started, wanted to tell you about our consulting arm, TF Agency, where we work with blockchain companies, companies looking to adopt the technology, entrepreneurs and investors looking to understand the space, and with those looking to grow their career in this emerging industry. For more information, please email us at info at tfagency.io. So we started out doing blockchain events, and so you might have seen or been to one of our events called uh, TF Blockchain, uh, where we host um, conferences and events. Uh, the goal of what we do is really focused around uh, networking and then advanced level content. So that's why when you came in, um, you know, you're greeted and you're told a networking question that you can ask each other. Uh, we figure there's two main reasons why you're coming to an event. It's to uh, meet someone. Uh, and to learn a little something. So we want to make sure that we're facilitating both of those for you. Um, and so uh, as we've been doing these events with, in blockchain, I thought it could be pretty interesting to do the same thing for product management, uh, just because I've seen a lot of the events um, that I've been to in product management are typically more at a, at a junior or like an entry level. And so what I thought would be really interesting is to kind of have these conversations just like we do in the blockchain uh, with uh, people that have been in product for quite some time. So you'll get to see a lot of those one-on-one uh, -on -one personal type conversations. So um, with that, I'm really excited to introduce uh, the first speakers that we've had for TF product, and that's Priya, Adrian, and Greg. Welcome them up. We'll share this one. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Cool. Um, well, thank you. I, I have. Um, I appreciate you all being here. Uh, it's it's good it's good to be here on a, it's a nice beautiful sunny day here in Seattle, which isn't isn't common. Um, it's more common than people make it seem though, in the, in the at least in the spring and the summer, right? So um, I know each of you uh, from different ways and uh, just from either working together or um, you know uh, startup startup scenes. Uh, Greg and I we just met recently, but I'm excited to learn more about you. And so with that, I'd love if each one of you could introduce yourselves to uh, our audience. Okay. okay. Uh, my name is Greg Mushin. Um, I'm a product manager at Compass, which is a, a real estate company. Um, before that, I was a VP product at a local startup named Outreach um, in the sales space. And uh, prior to that, I was at Expedia uh, running flight shopping. Uh, so I think that's it. Okay. Um, I think I just turned it on. Great. So I'm Priya, thank you for the introduction. I think Jonathan and I met playing poker together, so <laughs> a little bit more, yeah. Uh, but it's startup poker, so I guess we're in good company. Um, I am a technical product manager at Facebook. Prior to that, I was a founder at a startup here in Seattle. Really interesting experience. We raised about a quarter of a million, um, still running, but we've had our like roughs and tumbles. And prior to that, I was a PM at Microsoft, so for about five years or so. Awesome, hi. Hi, I'm Adrian Musnegi. I'm Senior Director of Product at Accolade, which is a healthcare company here in Seattle. Prior to that, I was at Avo, uh, online legal uh, marketplace. I met Jonathan through the startup space as well, so good connections, although we haven't played poker yet. 
<laughs> someday soon. Yeah, uh, well, awesome. Well, yeah, again, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate you being at our, our first TF product management event that we're hosting. Uh, question I love to ask is, what is your product management origin story? Like, how did you discover that you were a product manager? You know, for me, <clears throat> I was doing product management things and not realizing that what that was called was product management. I thought it was more just entrepreneurship. So I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, from, from your guys' points of view, what, how that happened. Feel free, anybody to jump in first. I guess everyone's looking at me, so I'll start. Um, so I was actually at Microsoft. I was a program manager, and I really loved what I was doing at Microsoft, but everybody was coming to me and saying, here, this is what you need to go build. Like, this is the problem we want to solve. Um, you can figure out how to solve it, and you can work with users and, and figure out how to go about that. But then I all of a sudden was like, wait a minute, I actually want to figure out what we should be doing. I want to know more about the market. I want to know more about the user. I want to figure out what are those problems we should be looking at solving, both from a user perspective and a competitive perspective. And so from there, it's pretty hard at Microsoft to actually get into product from program. So found my way into a, my first product role and then actually took the product certification class through UW, um, which is something Jonathan is involved with as well. And that's kind of where I started to cut my you know, teeth as a product manager and my first role was at drugstore.com. Um, I'll dovetail on that. So I found a very similar experience at Microsoft being a PM. I think now since my time there, they really shifted the role from program manager trying to move it to product manager. Um, but it was, it was really this moment where you're like, oh, I can define what we're building, not actually have to build it myself. And that seems really um, liberating in the sense that you can go out there and focus on other portions of the market, like gaps that you want to address, as well as how you can actually disrupt the industry. The, the one piece I found, for me at least, was it, it is definitely like a soft science, right? It's somewhere between knowing how to build it and actually being able to justify a business case for it. So you can get investment, be it for a startup or a big company. And that's, that's what actually drove me to going out there and getting like an executive MBA um, at Stanford. And that's been incredibly valuable to get some of the softer sciences or the business skills around like, hey, here's why the market opportunity is great for us to go out there and capture. And like, this is why we should invest, you know, whatever number of engineers in it. But very, very similar experience to that. Uh, I came actually from the engineering side. And at the time, I was uh, an engineering manager at Expedia and uh, we, we had a team that was building a lot of stuff. We didn't have a product manager. And I kind of learned uh, the hard way uh, numerous times on what it's like to deal with an engineering team when you build something that nobody uses. And so we made that mistake a couple times, and the team was completely demoralized. And uh, I said, OK, I'm going to make sure that that never happens again. And uh, so that's kind of how I, I fell into product, um, was really kind of making a number of mistakes uh, building stuff that nobody used, nobody wanted, and then uh, kind of promising myself that I would never let that happen again. That's that's an interesting and funny point. Like, um, <laughs> no, I definitely, you know, I, I teach product management, and one of the things that will happen often is my students will swear a couple are here will say things like, um, "Is this a good idea or is this a bad idea?" And my response is it doesn't matter what I think, right? Like, it matters that you're validating um, against the, what your idea is and you're iterating against that and you have, like, the proof points um, either through research or, or customer interviews or so forth to know that. So, um, you know, what we, the topic of this event is, um, you know, why does product management matter? So I'd love, you know, if some of you, actually all of you have startup experience and all of you have, you know, um, uh, 
enterprise experience. So I love on, on both sides of that. Let's start with the startup side. Like, why does product management matter in a startup environment? I think that Greg just hit it on the nail on the head with the comment around like you want to make sure you're building something that people are actually going to use and so I've noticed in my experience startups you know sometimes they bring in product early sometimes they bring in, in later and when you're small and scrappy and trying to just get by with the funds that you have you start building right away to get something out there to prove it out and so I think getting product um, or product perspective involved in earlier in that process really helps to kind of hit the ground running on building something that will actually work within the market. So um, I am a firm believer in bringing product in earlier. Yeah. Um, and I think startups in general um, tend to start with engineers and then think, like Greg said, oh, wait a minute, we're, we're building something that you know maybe is not the right thing for the market. So let's, let's bring in a product perspective. Yeah, I think that's also what makes it difficult for uh, founders who are not product focused, right? Because a lot of times in a startup, the founder um, is that first product manager, whether they want to be or not, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you guys? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, sure. So I would just exactly echo those comments. Like, I think startups often fail because they're solving a problem that's feasible but not necessarily desirable. Mm -hmm. And product has this laser-like focus on the pain point that you're solving, right? That's the value you're creating, and the product that you have is going to capture that value in a real way. Um, and so for me personally, you know, with my startup experience, I feel like one of the biggest mistakes I made going about it was actually hiring more on the sales and marketing side and less on the product side. And the sales and marketing, they'll absolutely get you traction like within the first few months, but that traction is somewhat unsustainable because people need to really love what you're building to build a loyalty toward it. Um, and so product is, the earlier you can get it in, the better like pulse you have in the market. Absolutely. I think some founders are phenomenal at this, especially, you know, the, the founders who, who go in. Outreach is a phenomenal example to hear their stories. Pretty incredible. But I think they, they just kept pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. And they were literally down to their last month of cash. There were four founders. And uh, they said, Manny Medina, the CEO, uh, said to the rest of the three founders, hey, if we're going to do this, we need to act like a, a, a sales team of 20. And I think the engineer and the product person said, okay, well, if we're gonna do that, like we're gonna need some tools to do that. And uh, that was the origin of outreach. But um, they knew the user pain because they'd done it. They've been trying to make calls. Outreach, if you don't know, is a sales um, engagement platform. So this is gonna help you. If you're trying to prospect, which is really early in the sales funnel, and you need to make 100 calls a day um, to get that one meeting, uh, Outreach is going to help you sequence those communications, um, and so they've been doing that. They were like really familiar with the pain points. So I think they're sometimes when you have founders who are really familiar with that pain and solve it, then um, they can they can go a really long way without product. But ultimately, product's going to be solving that problem and solving it really well in a way that people love and will pay for. Um, and so sometimes people don't have that skill and need to bring somebody in who has it. Oh, I was going to add one more thing to that. Um, I think, you know, as we're all saying, it's, it's all about your customers. It's all about understanding their pain. Um, and I think there, there's kind of the secret sauce of product management, which Greg was also alluding to, where, you know, they're pivoting 20 times, us as well at Stylist Scout, my company, and we weren't able to hit the nail on the head. And I love the quote by Henry Ford, where he says, you know, if I'd asked what if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And it's really about having that intuition about what the market wants before they want it, and then you put it out there, and they'll tell you whether they want it, right? So it's there's a little bit of that art in there, I'd say. That's that's un, it's not a 
specific formula. Totally agree. Yeah, I like to say it's it's all about just finding the commonalities, right? So, you know, one customer might not give you that idea or like fi help you find product market fit, but once you start finding that commonality across various customers, the pain that they have, um, you're, you're all talking about the pain points, right? Um, and, and pain is super huge because um, the difference really between building a product to solve a pain versus an idea, right? One's more like a hobby, the other is like, oh, th this could be the next pretty interesting thing. Um, I guess with that, like, what are some examples you think of of ways to d determine and to find that pain point? Like, how how would you recommend that someone actually, um, I don't know, look for the pain, or is it you know just putting your your head to the ground and and, and listening for 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 the footsteps? What is it? You want to take it? Uh, gosh, I think that really you've got to experience it in some way. Um, either by just talking to people, observing them, doing it yourself. Um, there's there's a book that I always recommended to new product managers on my team. I was going to bring it. I actually forgot it, but I wrote down a quote. Um, it's called The Peregrine. Have any of you ever heard of it? It's a great book. Um, you should definitely read it. But it's about, actually, I'm going to tell you what it's about, and then you're going to say, you're crazy. I'm never reading that. <laughs> um, but it's about a person who's obsessed with bird watching, um, just completely obsessed with it. And now you're thinking, okay, I'm never going to read that book. Uh, but a lot of people actually consider it because it's so beautiful to read, like one of the best books of last century. Um, but uh, what I love is this one quote because he's so good at observation, and he knows everything about what these birds do. He says, I shut my eyes, and I tried to crystallize my will into the light-drenched prism of the hawk's mind. And uh, I just think that's so beautiful. But... He uh, spent so much time around these birds that he knew their every move, their pain points, everything. Um, so I think that to the extent that you can kind of embrace that observational um, capability, know who you're building for, you're going to do really well. Yeah, it sounds like it's a lot of empathy, right? Yeah, yeah that's exactly what I was about to say. It's um, customer empathy, just like deep, deep empathy for what your customer is feeling, trying to put yourself into their position. Um, so I recall my company, Stylist Scout, is like Airbnb for licensed cosmetologists and barbers. Um, it's so a it's great all service. <laughs> Try it out. <laughs> Thanks for that. I love it. Um, but I recall like the early days we were down at Westlake just trying to talk to anyone that's walking through going to Nordstrom Rack or going to Macy's or Sephora to say like, what's the biggest pain point that you have with your hairdresser, right? And and it's it's hard to have that empathy when you're like, just having a conversation on the fly, which is why I think you have to like go through the experience over and over again and conduct these customer interviews. Generally in the customer interview, when I put the product in front of them, I, I generally don't listen to what they're saying. I'm, I'm actually observing more of what they're doing because that will their behavior will demonstrate their struggle far, far more than potentially something they might say. Um, one book I love is called The Mom Test and it's for figuring out whether your product is good to put out into the market. Um, the premise of it being that if you ask your mom if you should build it, she's always going to say yes. So you <laughs> should exactly never. That's exactly what my mom does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly my mom's don't... not so nice. She would say no. But um, I mean, yeah, that's the exact premise she's of it. She's liked every single idea I've had. I'm like, okay, this, this is not working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not working. Um, right. And the it's like when you're asking your customers these questions, really try to frame it as what have you done in the past? Because the past behavior is the best indicator of their future behavior, right? Right. 
And that's how you figure out where's your end to break their user habit and potentially adopt them onto your product. But it, it all starts with empathy. I feel like I need to recommend a book, um, <laughs> so I'll be thinking of one. Um, you know, I, I agree with what um, both of you have said. I think really it's finding that sweet spot between like experiencing it and walking in somebody else's shoes and talking to people that are that are either can articulate or can't articulate the problems that they're trying to solve, but then also balancing that with data sources. So if you already have a product out there, it's a it's a great opportunity to look at that data. Um, I think when I've seen the the best work done in product, it's a balance between those two, um, and thinking about how to how how to, how to interpret some of that information that you're getting from all these different sources to take a bet and try a bet and as quickly as possible move forward and test and test and learn and get more get more feedback. So I think it does get back to really you know that that one-on-one -on -one connection with the people that you're trying to reach and that empathy. So yeah, I love the mom test. Like, I actually never heard about that, but it makes sense because that's exactly what my mom does. One of the things I also—it's also—it's about you know from the um, from the question standpoint, it's all how you formulate the question too, right? So, yeah, an example I like to give is um, you know if if we were to pull the, everybody in this room and I ask everybody like, raise your hand if you like ice cream, right? Everybody raise their hand if you like ice cream. Okay, so almost everybody is raising their hand. I'm gonna go start an ice cream company because I have all these amazing customers who like ice cream, right? Or I can ask that same question in a slightly different way and I can say, um, what's your favorite dessert, right? And so now by asking what's your favorite dessert, um, some people might say, I don't know, apple pie or cake or, or something else, right? And so here I am building a product about ice cream um, when that's not gonna be your first choice of dessert when you have that option, right? So, um, you know, we talked about the startup side, um, you know, you, you all have enterprise experience. What's it like, um, you, you know, doing product, working on product inside of enterprise? You might have, you know, top level, top level executives that are coming to you and telling you, like, this is the product, or you might be lucky enough to be in a company where it co product comes from the bottom. Um, what's kind of the difference between uh, startup versus product, start, sorry, startup product management versus enterprise product management? I think the first thing that comes to mind, I'm actually living it right now, being in a relatively new role. Um, at, at the enterprise level, there's there are just a lot more stakeholders um, that you have to manage. And it there's a lot more dependencies that you may not have at a, at a smaller company. So I think it really, um, it, 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 it's a little bit more challenging to get to a recommendation that everyone's going to be happy with. And so you have to really kind of build your um, ability to kind of negotiate and collaborate in different ways than you might at a, at a startup. I think that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the differences. Um, exactly. I think one of the big things, whether you're a startup founder or you know in the exec suite or you're at an enterprise company as an IC, um, you never have to stop answering the question of why. Why do we need to build this, right? And if you're CEO or founder of a company, you're doing that to your board members, you're doing that to your employees because in the nascent days of this product, like you're still figuring out what the vision is. And so like, you're gonna have to answer that regardless. And in the enterprise world, like you'll end up looking for funding from some of these senior execs where, or your big stakeholders who are along the way. Um, where I've seen enterprise companies really fail is if they think an idea is too small because it's only like tens of millions and not hundreds of millions or billions, right? So Microsoft's a great example of that. And then you give rise to a competitor that you never saw coming. Mm -hmm. Like Slack's a great example with Facebook. They're a really, really great chat tool. I don't know what their valuation is right now, but they kind of solved a gap in the market that Facebook maybe thought they already addressed. But 
probably haven't long term, right? So I think it's where you can't necessarily see the value, even if it's small. That that's where enterprise really starts to get gets get sticky. Yeah, I think um, I would agree on the stakeholders. I've seen a lot of that. Um, I think also it's um, you know a lot of working at products at different stages. You know, oftentimes if you're working for a larger company, um, you're, you're going to be working on um, optimizations to an existing product, um, and so it's you know a little bit earlier stage. Whereas um, in startups, as I'm sure a lot of you know, you know, you'll probably see a lot more of the zero to one or trying to figure out the market fit, or you know in some cases. Um, there may not be, this is the case at, at Outreach, um, like there is no category for that product um, before Outreach existed. And so even communicating to people what it was and why they should care about it um, could be a challenge at times. Um, so um, yeah, I think those would be the big differences. The second thing would be just the amount of data. I think that when you are in an enterprise, um, it's so much easier to rely on quantitative data. I remember being at um, you know, Expedia, we stopped arguing about things um, because it was so much faster to just go do a test, run an A-B test, and, you know, you'd know the next day. But if you, um, it was kind of a shock a little bit to go to outreach where there was uh, no data or, you know, it might take a year to get to significance, and we didn't have a year. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to rely on judgment call um, and couldn't rely so much on the quantitative data. One other thing that you reminded me of is to like what you own as a product manager um, at an enterprise level is probably a, a lot more narrow than what you might own at a, at a startup. So I, I have definitely gone back and forth between startups and enterprise and I've been at startups have been acquired. And so that's one of the biggest adjustments when at a startup you're used to kind of owning things end to end from a product perspective and at a large company things are you know, sliced and diced in a, a much smaller way, which can also be fun in a different a different way because then you have to, you know, collaborate in a different way than you might um, at a smaller company. Yeah. I was just going to add, like, um, I suspect many of you here are at big enterprise companies. Um, if there's one thing, if there were only one thing you could do to, like, gain influence with some of these execs, it would really be to learn, like, the financial lingo, lingo around, like, what's the true ROI, return on investment of investing in a particular product, right? I think that's, I, I don't want to say bottom line is always going to be the driving force for investing in a new product or a new area, but that in and of itself gives a lot of leverage to your ideas. So to be able to build out financial models, potentially build out business models, unit economics, I think that's like very, very valuable long-term. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, and maybe even, you know, that might feel daunting for some people, but maybe even at the beginning is just really learning how to do napkin math, right? Like just at for least sure. like some rough numbers, you know, to get started. Um, there's this uh, quote or, I don't know, phrase, quote, term, whatever you want to call it, that people say often that I disagree with, but I'm curious what your, your thoughts are, is that the product manager is the CEO of the product. What do you guys think about that? I don't like that quote. I'll tell you why after you guys say yours. Oh, my gosh. That's a loaded question. Yeah. I'll take it. There's no wrong <laughs> answer, but. That's you know, okay. I think that, you know, as a CEO, um, you know, if you think about what you're doing, you're in control of the company. And, you know, I think that, as a product manager, it's it's very different. Um, maybe if you're the CEO and the product manager, you're the CEO of the product. Yeah. Uh, but I think in most cases, um, you know, that's not going to be the case. And uh, you're going to be, you, you, there are a lot of people that you need to convince to get what you need to get done done. And almost none of them report to you. Uh, that's very different from a CEO. And um, you know, you're going to have to 
basically work through influence and work through using qualitative data, quantitative data, showing the vision to get people excited, um, showing people the why it matters. Um, I think those are the things that um, are most important. Um, but the things that I think are very similar to the CEO um, is taking ultimate accountability uh, for, for, for your product's success. I think that's incredibly important as a product manager, even if you don't have uh, full control over it. I think you answered that very well. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. agree with what Craig said. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think there's something about like CEO. It feels like this just there's a structure in place and it's very top down. I think, um, and so when I think of like the, the product manager, it really is that advocate for the product. And and you, like you said, you don't necessarily always have the reporting structure um, to to lean on. You have to um, navigate that through influence and building relationships. And that, that's just different than a CEO role, but I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, you are responsible for the, for the product. So that piece of being a CEO, I can definitely agree with. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stakeholders that you have as a CEO. There's obviously your customers who are giving you money, um, which they're incredibly important. Then you have your investors who are like, you're managing their, their investment, right? So they're trying to minimize risk and for them, the product isn't actually the product you have in the market, but it's the stock price. And so they're trying to minimize all the risk possible there. And they might even try and influence the product direction as a result because they want to increase the stock price. And then the final stakeholder you have is like your employees, right? Who you need to continually sell them on the vision every single day in order to make sure they're not going to go to another company. And so I think there's... Um, there's a much broader purview as the CEO level. Um, you obviously have more like ownership, but it's, yeah, stakeholders are, are much broader there. Yeah, I love all those answers. Um, so what, what I like to say is that the product manager is the entrepreneur of the product, yeah. not the CEO, right? Because, and the yeah. reason I like to think about it that way is because um, like you're all saying is that, you know, you don't necessarily have like direct oversight or um, you're, you're not the one uh, uh, that they're reporting to necessarily, but you got to get them on board. You have to um, prove as to why they need, you know, the hey engineering team, like this is what we're might, what we might be doing in this sprint. You got to give them some reason to believe in that. That's what we're going to be working on, right? Um, awesome. So with that, um, I'd love to start thinking about questions. Um, we'll I'll ask a couple more questions here, but we'll open up for um, for questions here in a, in a couple minutes. But um, what what are some things that you think? Um, what do you, sorry, what do you think is the hardest aspect of being a product manager? What's the most difficult? Uh, there are two things that come to mind for me. One is saying no, because that's really hard to do, but you have to be good at it. You have to be able to, to say no. That's really important. Um, and I think, two is balancing between, like, the executional strate uh, tactical work and then also doing the strategic work and being able to kind of get into the weeds, but then come back up and, and carve out time to do more of that strategy and, and visionary work. I think that's always a, been for me um, and in my product experience been kind of this constant, you know, tension that you have to be balancing those two in an appropriate way. Um, for, for me personally, I'd say, you know, I really subscribe to the lean methodology of build, measure, learn. And I think um, my experience at Microsoft and, and Expedia for a short time that I was there was really like once you ship a product, there's a big party, everyone's very excited, you pat each other on the back, and there's a lot of camaraderie. But if you think about where that step sits in the process, it's like building is step two and measuring is step three. So you really should be thinking about like what's gonna come next? Was this success or was this a failure, right? And then like wrapping your head around the fact that failure isn't 
necessarily a bad thing. And like mm -hmm. to have the humility when you start to assume you're not right. So you can put it out into the market much, much faster, get to the insights so you can feed it back into the loop. But I think it's easy to get stuck at the, the ship phase and not actually look at the success metrics or the measures afterwards. And it takes some, some diligence to look at that with like a unbiased eye. Yeah, and I would say um, the earlier you can bring up that measurement, the better. Even when you're like building it, I think that can be really good. Get, getting early reads. Um, I think for me, one of the hardest, there are kind of a couple of different hardest parts. Um, it's knowing all the stuff that I won't be able to work on. I'm so passionate about the space that it's just hard for me to, to know that there are all these things that I'll never get to work on, but I want to. I want to clone myself. Um, I think I would say saying no as well is really hard. And then I think um, the third part, would be um, keeping the lights on, and I think this goes back to strategy. But making sure that everybody knows, um, like, wh where are you going and why, and how everything fits in. And you should be able to, in my opinion, you should be able to ask ten people on on your team or different teams, yeah. like what we're doing, why we're why are we doing it, and you should get like almost the same answer. And I feel like if you if you don't have that, you probably have a little work to do. Um, but I think who the master in my mind at this is Elon Musk. And have you ever read uh, the 2006 blog post that he wrote on Tesla's master plan? Shh, don't tell anyone. Classic title for Elon Musk. Um, go back and read it um, because you can understand it's uh, less than a page, but he talks about, okay, well, why are electric cars important? Or, uh, sorry, here's what we're doing. We're going to move the earth to sustain sustainable energy. Okay, why is that important? He tells you why. And then, okay, well, if we're going to look at that, What's the biggest problem we need to solve? Okay, it's cars. Okay, are cars going to help us solve it? Yes, they will. And he just like so sequentially like moves you down and, and convinces you that this, okay, like where do I start working with you on this? Um, because I, I agree, this is like one of the most problems, one of the biggest problems in the universe that we could be doing right now. But then he tells you exactly how he's gonna do it. And he doesn't tell you the specifics, but if you go look at that document today, the strategy is the same as it was in 2006. And you know they're like on step three of it. Um, so I think it's really important to, to write that down, to circulate it, and make sure that people have a chance to debate it, because you're probably not going to get everything right, and hopefully have some heated debates on it. Um, but then you know, distribute it and make sure that everybody understands that. Yeah, ultimately, there has to be some sort of you know point of record, right? Like exactly. a lot of times, one of the biggest mistakes that happens is uh, product lives in each stakeholder's brain a little bit differently because they haven't agreed upon what product means, right, or what they're building or working on. Um, you know, uh, kind of the example I like to give a lot when I'm when I'm thinking about how how product goes is it's it's really like. I don't know, like when you ever you watch those old movies and then you're like, it's like an, a battle scene, right? And they're like moving the little characters around and they're saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to go, we're going to flank this side and we're going to go over here on this side, right? Like if each general had a slightly point, different point of view, like, mm, that's a great idea, but I'm actually <laughs> going to stay up back here, right? Like, you know, that's going to breed to a lot of, uh, of disaster, I guess, in that. Um, so I guess with that, I'd like to open up for questions if anybody has one. Back there. Can actually, um, can you come up here or for questions? That way I can make sure that we record it. So you guys talked about um, influencing and working with stakeholders. Um, what if those stakeholders don't understand product? How would you do it? Oh yeah. That's a great question. 
I can take a sure. I don't have a mic. Um, I think that um, this can happen. This can happen quite a bit, and uh, I think that it's important to formulate your strategy so that it can make sense to people who don't understand product. I think that's really important, actually, because you know, product isn't just um, about convincing people who understand product and you know, understand every cohort charts and all these other tools that you're going to use. Um, but uh, I think that going back to Elon Musk, if you read any of his writings, especially he did one for the Boring Company, the Boring Company FAQ, um, you, know, you don't have to understand product to, to get what the strategy is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. So I think that it's so important to make sure that you can distill it into a way that it's easily consumable by anybody in the company because um, it, most companies, a lot of the functions are going to be in service of that product. You know, If you think about a SaaS company, um, you're going to be building a software product. All of the different functions in, the, in there are going to be in service of that, and the product is there to serve, uh, serve the customer. So um, it's really important that everybody in the company understand where you're going and why you're doing it. Yeah, I would um, just say in terms of like putting it in human readable language, because I do think product is one of the fastest growing, I'll call it a science, uh, that's out there today. It's probably paralleled with some of these like engineering frameworks that are coming out left and right that's hard to keep track with, is really just pulling it back to the customer pain. So like what is it that our customers have to live with today and how do we like resolve that for them in a real way? and then trying to pull it to some financial language. But I, I, I have struggled with that in the past. It's like, how do you pull product or pull some of that language into someone who maybe doesn't have it uh, before, but hopefully like with the pain, it's, it's an easy starting point. Yeah, I think as a, a product manager, you have some insight into the different perspectives around why you're doing something. And I think trying to tell that story in different, different ways to see what resonates with somebody. Um, I also thought like when we, you were talking, Greg, I was like, well, I would just go pull that person into like a user study and let them yeah, like yeah. watch. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best yeah, way. Yeah, that like when, have when them see the pain. Yeah, yeah. when they yeah. see the pain, then they, they, they are in the customer's or the user's shoes. And so I, that has gone miles for me in the past uh, with helping to kind of identify what, what product can do and help within the organization. Yeah, it's almost like you have to ask, um, do you want me to build your idea? Or do you want me to build something that solves a pain point, right? Like, yeah, I've definitely experienced that before where you have a, a stakeholder like, oh, like this would be really neat if it did all these great things. It's like, great idea. Let's at least try to validate that first before we go down that direction. Yeah, exactly. But oh, by the way, we've already validated all these other things in this path that we're going down. So yeah. um, who else has a question? You want me to go over there or no? You just so, um, yeah, I, my background is as a software engineer. I work for two tech startups in Seattle. Thankfully, I had the luck of actually being a part of uh, customer phone calls and a bunch of other things, and I became very customer empathetic. How do you convey the same message to uh, engineers who hardly ever talk to people at a 10,000 people company, 5,000 people company? Um, and I really appreciate that because I, I guess I wanted to disclaim, put a disclaimer out there. I enjoy working with product managers when I worked at a tech startup. Um, so how do you replicate the same success and don't forget to lose track of that for your software engineers that when you translate stories, user stories for engineering purposes, they remember that, right? That the uh, customer pain points. I love what Adrian said. It's like if, if you can show them the pain, um, that's usually the best thing. Uh, recently, um, on the engineering team I'm working with right now, uh, we got a whole bunch of the people who are going to be using the product together and uh, showed them some, some prototypes. You know, there's probably a room of about 15 of them. 
and uh, we had our entire engineering team there. And uh, I, we were talking before, encouraging them to ask questions. And um, so they were asking all these questions. Okay, well, why do you need to know that? Okay, well, what about this? And uh, it was amazing. I just don't think that you can, you, you can't really replicate that. Uh, things get lost in translation. Um, so to the extent that you can give that first-person connection with the customer, um, I think that's always the best. And I think trying different ways and methodologies around that, you said you enjoy um, listening to customers and actually hearing that firsthand and uh, spending that time doing that. Other people don't want to spend that that time. So things that I've tried in the past have worked really well, creating a Slack channel that is around, like if you're doing a user study, that you can pop things into that channel or you know, living the mission channel when you get really great um, feedback from your actual users. And then also too, like you know, when there are studies, opening it up to you know the broader product team, product development team, and giving them the opportunities to actually go to those, those sessions. So I think it's trying different ways that are maybe... Uh, more or less time commitment, um, I think can be helpful to capture people that might not otherwise want to be involved in those things. And in the past too, I've actually, in startups, I put engineers on chat and been like, you're going to talk to customers for this next hour. <laughs> you just don't really have a choice. Um, so and that's, that's worked really well because it, it does force somebody to actually have that interaction and you know, they're the ones building the product. Um, so it's, it's been a great experience in the past doing that. There, um, there was one more thing that I was going to say. You just reminded me of this article that I read recently about Google. And uh, one of the things that Google attributed their early success to was having engineers have direct contact with customers. Um, and so this article was talking about those early days and how they're you know, trying at a, at a much larger scale now, obviously, to bring that back. Um, but yeah, in this article, they were attributing a lot of Google's success to just watching users. Yeah, I think I think the fundamental crux of your question is a really, really interesting one because it comes down to how do you motivate people into action, right? And, and so it's, in some ways, it's like a managerial question of like, how do you incite them to get really excited about the work so you don't have to be that like fuel for them? Um, I love the idea of just throwing them into the into the fire and just like <laughs> burn and learn. You got to figure it out. Um, generally, in my experience, uh, engineers are. They are fairly more introverted, and they have um, they have a passion to work on really deep, meaningful problems. And the best way I found to motivate people in general is to appeal to their sense of pride, not necessarily yours, right? And so, for us in Facebook, I think we face this a lot since we are so abstracted away from the customer. Like you can choose to never use an ads manager product. I work on the Facebook ads team, and so you have like no empathy for what these advertisers are going through, right? Um, and then it comes down to the numbers. And so it kind of comes down to if we were to build this, it'll help our uh, advertisers in this many ways and will result in this much operational like success, right? But it's it's kind of that mix of figuring out like pulling them a little bit into empathy, but then also figuring out like what's the meaningful problem that they're looking to solve. Any other okay, so this is uh, something which was discussed earlier, uh, the difference between enterprises and startups. So in the enterprises, there is a lot of stakeholders involved. How do you as product managers create a boundary for yourself so that the product, which is essentially your baby, how does the theme uh, doesn't get lost while you are building the product? I can start and then someone else can pull in. Um, I think this kind of goes back to the Elon Musk point. I really believe in guiding documentation. So it doesn't have to be long. Um, 
it, but like a one page, two page paper that really succinctly outlines the why, the what, the how, and pushing them to read that first. And then there's always like the concern of future creep coming in where someone kind of wants to come in and like make the make the product that much bigger. And I do believe like fundamentally, like your ideas get bigger the more that you share them. But it comes that comes down to a question of scoping where like, you know, assume for a second that the product that we're building isn't right. Would you be willing to wait one more day to delay the launch for something that really isn't worth our time? Like we should put this out there, get the learnings from the market and feed it back in to make it better. Um, and just kind of justifying them into like, let's get this out the door so we can learn more about it. But guiding documentation is, is the strongest piece that I've seen around it. Yeah, I think one of the first things I thought of was putting in those guardrails yeah. um, and that and and making sure people know where you're going ultimately and that there are everyone's aligned with what objectives and key measurements you're using to to get there so that they can on a, any individual on a day to day basis can be like, is what what I'm doing right now? Is it aligning up to that objective and those results that we're trying to drive as a team? Um, the other thing I thought of, too, when you mentioned stakeholders is as a as a product leader, I want to kind of shield my team from that noise, which can very easily happen, uh, especially in open office environments when anybody can walk up and, and, and chat at any time. So I think that's one of the other differences I've seen in, in larger companies is um, kind of having to create a bigger shield around some of that noise and distraction or building in some process around how do you interface with the team if there's something outside of the, you know, the work that they're working on within the sprint or whatever it is. Um, I, I, I would also say um, sometimes it's worth it to take a lot of extra time you know, with one-on-one -on -one conversations to really make sure that people feel heard and um, that any points that they bring up, uh, you can address. Um, so I think that's another uh, thing that I've learned as well is sometimes you can get a lot farther if you just take a lot more time to listen and really understand where people are coming from. Um, and there have been so many times when uh, I've had those conversations and realized I was so wrong about a particular perspective. It's amazing. So I think approaching them with humility and uh, with uh, the idea that you, you might be wrong going in, but explaining where you're coming from and really listening to them can go a long way. Okay, so we mentioned Elon Musk a few times. Um, so hopefully he listens in um, or just comes and hangs out with us sometime. I'm a big fan. Um, I love a question I love to ask is who's the best product manager um, like Elon Musk or like who, who's someone that you think like as a founder, entrepreneur, uh, investor for that matter, that maybe they're not like product manager by title, but like it, it, you would consider to be a, a pretty interesting or amazing product manager. Who's like your best and who's, who'd be your non-conventional version as well? I have a good non-conventional one. Yeah, um, uh, I know my best. I don't know my non-conventional, but I, um, I love Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky from Airbnb. Mm -hmm. If you haven't already listened to How I Built This by Guy Raz on NPR, <laughs> It's one of their first like podcasts that they do. And just their story, how much tenacity they had to have. I think they took out multiple credit cards and like took out a tremendous amount of debt because they believed in this idea 
so much and they had like the start stop rudder with the whole Airbnb system where they really couldn't find their like retention business model. But fundamentally what, what drove them forward, what made them so successful was their focus on product, was their focus on like UX excellence, building something that solved real pain, like having really high quality like uh, information that you're powering around it and like really focused in on customer pain points. But those two together I think, and I think Joe Gabriel went to RISD so makes a ton of sense that he yeah. brought I, a designer. I definitely echo, I've, I've heard their story quite a few times. So and yeah. um, everything from like the, the Captain McCain's to like the Obama O's. So they like, yeah. you know, they, they sold like these cereal boxes <laughs> to, to kind of help fund the company um, around like, you know, kind of like a, this branding type of exercise. But then also is that their, their, uh, their obsession with customer experience, right? Like they would do these things where um, they say like, hey, like we noticed that your pictures aren't, aren't great, so we'll send yeah. a professional person to your house to send uh, pictures of, your, um, of the inside so that way you can get better people to, or sorry, you can get more renters. And it was them with a, just a nice camera yeah. taking the picture, right. right? Things like that. And I love that story too because they, they were actually, as I recall, like flew out to New York and they were in customers' apartments, and they were trying to figure out like why people weren't booking them in New York. And then somebody, I think one of the customers had an idea. Well, if we just have better photos, then you know, maybe we get better bookings. And so they they went out physically and took those pictures. And but I think they just had so much consumer yeah. and customer interactions that they they really knew their customer and who they were building for. I I don't have a specific person in mind, but when I think about um, the best product folks that I've known or take inspiration from, it's those people that are really creative and try things out and test and learn in like really creative ways that are super resourceful um, in ways that you might not think you'd actually get some learnings and they just go out and try. I, you have some really good examples around Airbnb and you know how they just tried things out and, and, and got themselves in these situations where they could, could see what was working and what wasn't working. Um, so I think that's where I get my inspiration is how people creatively think about the solving user problems and getting that that input and that feedback. Uh, one team that comes to mind was the early Slack team. Um, I've always been really inspired by them. They have this uh, story that they would get all of this customer feedback through tweets, through emails, um, and I think that they were, it was some absurd volume where you sit there and you think about it and you're like, there's no way that you could answer every single one. But I think they got like 15,000 um, user feedback and they answered every single user. Amazing. So I take it like a ton of inspiration from that. Yeah. I also too, people that are actually solving a problem for themselves and then all of a sudden like get something that snowballs and like I think of Sarah Blakely with Spanx, right? Like she was trying to sol solve a problem for herself and then ultimately, you know, it's a, it, it took off, right? And so I think folks that really are thinking about trying to do something for themselves, which may seem selfish, but they actually really hone in on a problem. And I think that is just really interesting to see how somebody could be creative in solving their own problem. Uh, Josh Elman is another one who comes to mind. Um, he is a partner at Greylock, uh, but he's also the VP of product at Robinhood. Um, and he was at, he was early LinkedIn, he was early Twitter, he was early Facebook. Um, but he, uh, what I love about what Josh does is he's like one of the best problem solvers, um, uh, that I've like ever personally come across. And he has this great talk that if you ever want to go see it, I, um, I think it's the 2014 habit summit. Um, but he has this talk about like how he early Twitter, they were getting people in and they were just abandoning them. 
And so he gives this talk about like how he systematically like broke down the onboarding process to find out where they were losing people and why. And he came up with this thing called the kite model. Um, uh, but just that really structured thinking and this interesting mix between like qualitative and quantitative uh, data. I think he's like one of the best in that department. How about anybody unconventional that you might not think of as a product manager, like, I don't know, an artist or uh, influencer or, or someone of that, that maybe it's not like, you know, quote unquote, like, so I'll tell you someone who I think is pretty interesting to me, um, and people probably laugh when I say this, but um, I know Sarah will, like, I find Kanye West to be a very interesting individual, yeah. right? Because like his, his product is like, his product is actually himself right yeah. and then so like then he like does these tests essentially like crazy music or outlandish comments or um you know clothing or whatever right and then he just iterates off of that and like might change his position but he's ultimately has like this really interesting following as a result of it right so that's kind of someone who i think about when i think of like oh in this unconventional way able to um, productize themselves and so i was curious if you had any thoughts on people like that or anyone in that realm you know, the one person, now that you say it, I, I totally agree, Kanye West has, like, productized himself in a really unique way. Um, and I was just listening to Trevor Noah's Daily Show, um, and Tyra Banks was on it. And, you know, growing up, I always thought of her as, like, superficial model, like, whatever. She's paid to be pretty. Um, but now, as, as you hear about her in her later years, where she's 50s, 60, she was recently featured again on the cover of Sports Illustrated, now 25 pounds heavier, having a child. And for the first time, it was, photograph it was photographed by also a black woman. And so that's, I, I see her pushing these bounds of what it means to be like a supermodel in like the new day and age where it's not just about color, it's not about height, it's not about weight. Um, and I, I really like that, you know? And so like, she's also a professor at Stanford, which is really tremendous as well. But you see some... She would probably stand out to me as someone that's non-conventional, but has really developed like a good brand around herself. I know, it's <laughs> tough, that's a tough question. That's a good question. Yeah. One person that comes to mind is uh, Fran Adria. Um, so he's, uh, a lot of people consider him like one of the best chefs in the world. Uh, but it was really, what I think is pretty interesting is like how he approaches innovation. Um, so he would, uh, at the time his restaurant was open, it's since closed down, El Boli, which is in um, the Catalonia region of Spain. But he and his brother would take uh, six or seven months off a year and shut down the restaurant. And it was all about innovation. And they were trying to figure out how they could, they do things that look like they're not even food. It's just so crazy when you look at it. You're like, that's what is going on there, but it's amazing. Um, but uh, their innovation, kind of their approach to it, uh, was so structured and disciplined and they they would move to the other side of Spain and they would basically take something you know like an apple or whatever and they would literally go through like every modality of an apple and what you could do with it like okay we're gonna dehydrate it okay we're gonna dehydrate it and add this other thing and then turn it into a powder and then it was just crazy stuff but they wouldn't actually create recipes um, they would just basically catalog all of these different things that they could do with these raw ingredients and uh, it was not until like days before the restaurant started that they just started assembling all of these different components that they had created. So I just thought that that was a really interesting um, way of approaching innovation that's always inspired me. Yeah. It's just understanding that it's like 
you know, you think you see this amazing thing and you think that how could somebody possibly come up with that? And it was more or less, okay, I got up at 6 a.m. and I stayed up until 10 p.m. every night and I tried every way that you could ever process lettuce. And that's how I did it. <laughs> yeah, this was rapid, massive, massive iterations. Yeah. And I guess I should have said this, like one of the reasons I, I think Kanye West is interesting is because when he'll come out with a new album, he'll you know, lock himself in like Wyoming, right? For like uh, six months and then just work on the album and do these rapid iterations. He did the same thing in Hawaii a while ago. So um, last question I want to ask you is, um, what's the best piece of advice you can give to any, pro the, uh, any product manager, whether they're aspiring to be a product manager, already a product manager? What's, what's the best piece of advice you could give uh, to someone in the field? Uh, this might sound simple, but I think it's really important is listening and building empathy. And that's harder to do than you would think. And so I think, to, I think what Greg was saying earlier, too, is just being open and being humble and, and hearing from different perspectives what people um, have to say because everyone brings a different um, uh, context with them to the conversation. And that's where I think you can learn the most if you really, truly listen. Couldn't agree more. And um, so obviously I can't say that because you said it. Um, so I would marry that with uh, speed. And I think that if you have really good listening um, along with uh, speed and rapid iteration cycle, uh, you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. And for me, I think it kind of dovetails off of both those. It's like fail often, fail fast, right? If you're not failing, probably means you're not trying. So put your ideas out there, put it into the market, figure out if they actually want it. Yeah, I think that if any of you seen Free Solo, it's great if you haven't seen oh, it. But yes. there's that with Alex. That yeah, yeah. with Alex Arnold. Um, yes. There's that quote in there things that if you're do. constantly searching the edge, someday you're gonna find it. Oof. And um, you know, I, f I feel like um, obviously you don't want to do that when you're climbing, and you can, and you can die. <laughs> but um, I feel like sometimes people get a little too scared of failure, and and they don't look at it as like a necessary form of the innovation cycle. Like if you're not failing, you're probably not trying enough stuff, but then also marrying that with kind of the risk management yeah. of making sure that if you fail, you're not, you know, you're not going to blow up. Um, so I think that's yeah. important as well. Just to build off of the, a little bit, I think also creating an environment within your team where learning is celebrated and so that, um, and that your team is also seeing you fail um, and learn from from that. So I yes. think that is a, a really important piece of, of building a culture that can take risks and can support each other when things go awry, because they do. But that's when you learn the most. Yeah, yeah and I think oftentimes uh, one thing that can be the most important part is getting the executive team on board with that and making sure that uh, that learning aspect is celebrated. Yeah. Totes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, on the failure thing, what I always like to say is um, try so hard that you can fail, but like don't try to fail, right? Like, I, and right, yeah. you know what I mean, right? So, because like a lot of times, and I know obviously that's not what you you, you mean it in that way, but a lot of times people will say things like, oh, like fail fast and, and fail, fail, fail. It's like, okay, well, it's like if I'm not going to walk down the street and be like, I'm going to trip right now, right? <laughs> so, you know, you're going to keep going as hard as you can, just knowing that you likely are going to fail, but you're still going to try your best, of course, not to fail, but knowing that, knowing that that's definitely most likely the, what's going to take place, right? So, um, um, Adrian, Pri, uh, Priya, and Greg, thank you so much for being here. Let's give them a round of applause. Um, we'll, we'll, be hang we'll, we'll be spending a little...
we'll be uh, spending a little bit more time here uh, yeah, continuing networking. One thing that we do at all our events um, is we'll end every single session with a question from one of our speakers to the audience that you can continue and use as your networking question uh, uh, through the rest of the night. So do one of you have a question you'd like to ask the audience that they can uh, continue with? Um, yeah, I would. What, what was one thing that you thought was true that you later found out to be false? Can I ask a question as well, or oh, is there only one? Go for it. Perfect. Um, what's your what's your startup idea? So the one thing that I thought was true that later found out was false was Santa Claus. I, just <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I would say I would ask the question of what was the last thing that you learned. Thank you for listening to the TF Blockchain Podcast. We appreciate your support as we continue our mission to connect the broader business and technology community with blockchain innovators. For the most up-to-date information on all things TF Blockchain, please visit tfblock.io. Please like and subscribe to our podcast to be the first to hear from our amazing speakers changing the world through blockchain and crypto. If you're interested in partnering with the TF Blockchain Podcast, please email us at podcast at tfblock.io. Be on the lookout for TF Blockchain chapters coming to your city, and please reach out to us if interested in becoming a chapter director. We hope to see you soon at one of our live events. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay crypto, my friends. The views and opinions expressed at TF Blockchain events and podcasts are solely those of the ones presenting and do not necessarily reflect the position or opinion of TF Blockchain. TF Blockchain is not responsible for the opinions or content of its guests and does not endorse any particular company or currency. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions.